0: The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a more a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection.
1: Good morning, City Church. It's so good to be with you today. My connection to City Church goes back over a decade before I was even involved in ministry. I'd moved from NYC to the Bay Area to do a fellowship at Berkeley Rep, and it was a tough year for many reasons. But I got involved in a small church plant that gathered at Fifth and Mission, and it was there that I met one of your leaders, Jason Morrill. Being a part of that small community, it would shape me far more than I could understand at the time. When I moved back to NYC, I got involved in another church plant where I eventually became a founding staff member and then the associate pastor of Forefront Brooklyn. God called us away from Brooklyn in 2017, back to the Midwest, where I went to seminary. And during that time, I launched Launchpad Partners, which is a nonprofit supporting leaders who want to launch a fully LGBTQ inclusive, anti-racist, Jesus-following, love and justice-generating faith community. My partner Erin and I, we provide coaching tools and resources, and we connect them to a network of people like you who've been on this journey longer and who can support them along the way. So thank you, City Church, for supporting the work of Launchpad Partners. It was 2019 when I was last in person with all of you in San Francisco for the Why Christian Conference. It's where I met your pastors, Peter and Fred, and when we were all out for drinks one night, I anxiously confessed to Peter that I was discerning moving to Cincinnati after seminary to launch a church. He was actually the first person I said that out loud to. So now here I am, preaching to you this morning from my home in Cincinnati, where my husband and two boys and I moved in April. And maybe some of you can relate to the season that I'm in not the church planting thing, that's weird, I know, but moving during a pandemic, it became a trend, right? A lot of us are emerging out of the world, or at least attempting to, in a new house or a new city or neighborhood, and that means that we have new routines, new surroundings, new delivery people. I had a baby last fall, so I'm even emerging back into public life as the mother of two for for the first time, and I have this whole new appreciation for the concept of what it means to be a good neighbor. There was this day, late last fall, when the college boys who lived across the street from us came over with donuts and introduced themselves and said congrats on the new baby and it made my day. And our mailman, who we miss seeing. Every day he would chat with my four year old and call him Big Brother. And our neighbor across the street sent over pizza and salad. Our neighbors, the people in our neighborhood, who we didn't think much of before, became so important to us and brought us so much joy as our pandemic filled world got smaller and smaller. And so as I come to this parable again now in 2021, I'm thinking of what it means to love thy neighbor differently. The language of Jesus once lived as a part of a social, political, and economic system that gave it birth and meaning and power. And so when we come to a parable of Jesus's, we come to it with our own already determined, larger understanding of what Jesus's public ministry was all about. And we also come to it with everything that's going on in our own lives that reads meaning into the text, whether we are conscious of it or not. So what are you thinking about these days when you hear that word neighbor, when you hear that phrase to love thy neighbor as thyself, what make, what, what's bubbling up for you today as you hear that? Dr. King taught on agape love and this idea of loving your neighbor, which the Greek word here is agape. It's this kind of love that God has for us. And its meaning is one of understanding, redeeming, goodwill for all of humankind It's this overflowing love, King teaches, which is purely spontaneous, unmotivated, groundless, and creative. I love that. It's this creative love. It's not set in motion by any quality or function of its object. It's not about worthiness or unworthiness. It's this undiscriminating love of God that's operating in the human heart and responding to the worthiness of all people. It's a love that regards your neighbor's needs before and above your own. And here's Jesus in Luke's gospel giving this lesson on agape love to a lawyer who just seems to be entirely missing the mark. I mean, he's not even asking the right questions. Here we are at the start of this whole thing, and the lawyer asks, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? First he calls Jesus Teacher, not Lord. So that tells us something right there. But then he's he's presuming that eternal life is a thing to be inherited or purchased, checked off your list, and you earn it rather than it being this gift freely given. Jewish New Testament scholar, Amy J. Levine, she teaches that our sources, including the New Testament, indicate that most first century Jews already believed in resurrection or eternal life. Jews followed Torah not to earn eternal life because this was already part of the covenant between them and God. The first commandment begins in Exodus 20. It begins, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So the first word is one of grace. It's about what God has done for you already, for Israel. The rest is about how we respond to God's gracious love. Love is anchored in grace, and grace is lived out in the law, or in the Torah, which means way of life. The law is given to us so that we might live and love in this reflection of grace and the love of God. The lawyer is presuming that there is one right answer to his question. He wants certainty in his faith, like so many of us do. It's far easier to follow a checklist than it is to navigate the inner workings of your own heart. Few of us want to do the hard work to face the tensions and insecurities and fears that prevent us from living in the kind of agape love that King described for us, especially when those tensions and insecurities are wrapped up in the complexities of the systems and cultures and structures of power of the world in which we live. I can't can't believe this story, but just the other night as I was working on this sermon, an article popped up in my Apple news feed, and it was titled, homeowners yell at man trying to save neighbor's life on their lawn. This driver in Florida was having a seizure in his car, which came to a stop in his neighbor's yard, and the journalist wrote it up saying, the homeowners told the good Samaritan, the man who rushed the driver's aid, to get off our lawn, have him die somewhere else. A lawn worker, a man named Tony, who was walking to work just this past Monday, he saw the driver having a seizure in his car, and he ran toward the moving vehicle, grabbed the car's fender to stop it from rolling any further down the street, and when it finally came to a stop in the yard of the homeowners who yelled at him, the man was in terrible shape. The windows were up and the doors were locked, so Tony's banging on the car, and that's when he recognizes that the driver is someone he, who he remembers where he lives. So he runs down to his house, gets his wife, and calls 911, and his actions saved the man's life. I mean, I can't even begin to process the layers of that story. I mean, talk about the people in your neighborhood, right? But it is this example for us of how this parable is just just known in American culture. I mean, the, the journalist writes kind of offhandedly about the Good Samaritan in this story this unlikely guy who comes to the rescue. This story has been standard fare in the church for so long that in order for us to recover the provocativeness of Jesus' message, we really have to understand that it's about much more than just this. No matter what you believe about Jesus the Christ, no matter what you believe about salvation, resurrection, and the atonement of the cross, the historical fact of the matter is that the person of Jesus of Nazareth was killed by the state because he was a threat to the power structure of the political systems of his day. And God's redeeming character, God's redeeming love, the way in which God works through this act of violence by the state. It's this culmination of all the work that Jesus was doing in his time on earth. We cannot judge these parables unless we locate them in some part of this larger public strategy of Jesus's that eventually gets him executed on the cross. We have to understand that when Jesus tells a subversive story like this, when he tells it slant, it's pointing towards the cross, not only theologically or spiritually or morally, but in this very real active way. Jesus is subversive because he has to be, because he still has work to get done, and he needs to be able to walk around in public and do that work still. So when we really think about that context, how does it change the stakes? How does it change what we hear Jesus trying to do? Whether it's the literal words of Jesus or Luke's interpretation for his specific audience, the spirit behind it is one that says it's about what you do. It's about how you live and how you act. It's about how you rise above the political and social restrictions of your day to act out of love. It's about how love drives the way you live. That's how you find eternal life. That's how you come to understand what it means to truly live here and now. Faith in the ultimate action of God on the cross will be found in the acts that mirror it in our day-to-day life. Which brings me back to this, to the best question in this whole thing. It's the way that Jesus responds after being asked, asked what what must one do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, well, what's written in the law, dummy? I mean, how do you read it? I may have added a dummy part, but like, how do you read it? How do you interpret what's written there on the page? Because you should know, lawyer man. Through what lens are you reading the the Torah, the ways of God, the way of... Of life that God has written for you so that you might learn to flourish in community. How do you read that? And, you know, the man answers, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, now go and do that and find out what that means. That's how you'll find what it means to truly live, to live so fully and deeply that you put the needs of others before your own, just as God does for you. But the lawyer doesn't get it, right? He doesn't have the framework to really grasp what it is that Jesus is telling him, so he just gets hung up on the last detail. It's kind of like how some Christians will get hung up on LGBTQ inclusion when it's about so much more than that, so much bigger than that but there's this framework that they're stuck in that they can't get themselves out of. And so the lawyer just gets hung up in that last detail and he asks, okay, well then who's my neighbor? And I bet this is the moment when Jesus just sighs, this like great big sigh. <sighs> and then he tells this parable. <laughs> and if we were in Jesus's original audience, we might have known what he was doing with this setup of three. The priest, the Levite, all right, okay, the third one that comes along, they're going to help. And the thing is, there's no excuse for the first two not helping as faith leaders in the community. Fear, bias, time, whatever it is, they should have known that Jewish law is very clear. To save a life is the most important thing, more than purity laws, more than keeping the Sabbath. And should this man have died in their care, the law also states that you bury the corpse. So, all right. So the first two have failed. So let's look at the language that Jesus uses. Going down, saw, passed. Came, saw, passed. That's the first two. And then we get to the Samaritan. Came, saw, moved with pity. What is it that made the Samaritan stop? What is it that made the Samaritan? Act with compassion, be moved with pity. I feel like we can learn a lot from the verbs that are used in stories like this when we slow down to really look at it. Because the language gets much more elaborate and detailed here. We hear about how he dressed the man's wounds and put oil on them, take him to the to the inn and cared for him. What is it though that caused this man to have this kind of compassion for someone who could be his enemy? Brene Brown says, we find our empathy where we place our love. And I've thought a lot about that over the past year, this idea that our empathy builds out of the, the, the places where we have love. My, my baby, he was diagnosed with a peanut and egg allergy, and that's not something that I've experienced before. And it's making me see the world differently. My love for my son is making me understand inclusion at the dinner table in an entirely different way. And we're still early on, but it's making me think about what it means to really truly be hospitable and generous to a family with food allergies, where sitting down at the table is this can be this really anxious experience when you don't know if your food has been safely prepared. What's remarkable about the Samaritan man is not that his empathy or his compassion on the Jericho Road comes from some place of shared mutuality or oppression or marginalization because we don't actually know those details from the story and oftentimes that gets assumed that he's a long care worker in the in the wealthy neighborhood right but actually the Samaritan in this story has influence he has resources he's able to go to the inn and work on credit leave this man on credit so What is it that's so impactful about this Samaritan man? It's not just that he's Samaritan, it's that he's an enemy. I mean, there's a reason why this story is called the good Samaritan and not just the Samaritan man. It's kind of like saying the good Nazi. Luke's audience would not have thought of anything good could come out of Samaria. And here's the lawyer at the end when Jesus asks, Okay, well, who's the one that that was the neighbor? And he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He just says, who was the one who showed him mercy? It's like saying Voldemort or something. In very short summary, because we cannot get into the details of why the Samaritan is the enemy in the story, what you need to know is that it's not just ideological and theological, but also truly there's a history of violence. So... When Luke's audience is hearing this, there are feelings that might be arising from their political and historical and even family or personal context about what it means to encounter a Samaritan and what it means for a Samaritan on the Jericho Road, on this dangerous road, to stop and be moved with pity, to respond to someone who might be his enemy. I think this parable, the way I'm hearing it right now anyway, is this call for us to rise above the biases that are placed within us that are put there by political systems and histories that cause us subconsciously or not to judge and deny the humanity and worth of our fellow human beings, those we call enemy, those we call neighbor, those who are both, because we are all a part of the human family. What's inside the Samaritan that compels him to regard his enemy as another man, just like him. Well, the Reverend Howard Thurman, who's a church planter in San Francisco, by the way, he was this wise spiritual leader of the civil rights movement, a spiritual caregiver for Dr. King and a legend in his own right. And he preached on the good Samaritan as this core part of his working gospel words that he strived to live by. He preached that community is rooted in its quality of deliberate intention. That intentional choice to discern your options and to choose to live and to love. The purpose of God in the creation of humankind, Thurman preached, is to establish this kind of kingdom of people, united in their intent to be to each other, not only what God would have them be, but what God is to each of them. It's revolutionary and it's so difficult, but what it means is that that part of me where the Spirit of God resides within me, it's got to move up into the center of my awareness and become a part of my deliberate intentions for my life. And where this doesn't happen, Thurman would argue, there is no community. When it does arise within you, though, this deliberate intention, this curious thing takes place. So now you have something within you that more and more structures your daily behavior, your thinking, all the details of your life, the way you read your life, right? Arising within you is this integration of spirit and the spirit of love that moves your life more and more and organizes your personality and the materials around you and becomes the agent of this deliberate, intentional way of loving. It affects how you read your life and the way your life reads you. And I think this is what I've come to love about church planting, that there is this energy and intention and ambition about launching something new that organizes us into community together in this deliberate, intentional kind of way. And it can result in this fresh expression of the gospel message, accumulated through these deliberate choices, these moments of connection with God in community in new and intentional kind of ways. For me, I hear this parable today, and I hear the call to rise above, to be more conscious, to recognize how love is or isn't at work in my life, and it's far more challenging than we give it credit for. The implications, the layers of what it means to love thy neighbor and to love thyself are deep and complex and difficult, and it requires discernment and awareness and a whole lot of prayer. But this is how you find what it means to have eternal life, to live life to its fullest, to find faith in that ultimate action of the hope of God that's played out in those little actions of hope that we can provide for one another in our day to day. May we each go forward finding what it is, finding what it means to live with that spirit of love within you and to love thy neighbor as yourself.